Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision with Gregory Nielsen. My name is Gregory Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, LLC, where we work with nonprofit leaders and organizations in areas including governance, board leadership, strategic planning, and performance assessment. Today, I'm happy to be joined by a friend and colleague, Tony Zippel. Tony is the brand new president and CEO of ZB Consults, um, has been a nonprofit executive, nonprofit CEO for a number of years. Tony, welcome to the podcast this morning. Good to be here with you, Greg. Tony, you and I have known each other here in Louisville for a couple of years, but your background actually started, your career started outside of the area. Yeah, I've been in Louisville now for almost eight years as the uh, president and CEO of originally uh, Seven County Services, now Centerstone, a large community mental health center, but was in Chicago in a similar job for eight years before that, in uh, Boston for a long time before that as both a, a professor and academic researcher at Boston University and the chief operating officer of a large community mental health organization. So I've been at this for a while. Well, today we're going to be talking about positive psychology for nonprofit leaders. But as those who listen to the podcast know, I love to talk about um, individuals' backgrounds and their leadership journey and how they got to where they are today. One of the things that I find fascinating about nonprofit leaders is the variety of um, backgrounds that they come from, both academic um, and business-wise. How did you first make that transition into nonprofit leadership, Tony? Well, you know, it's like most things in life. It's a series of happy accidents. You know, this kind of business that, that I've been in for, for almost 40 years now uh, is not the kind of a thing that when you're in fourth grade and the teacher says, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up that anybody writes about, right? You know, I started out, I was originally going to be an urban planner and have a master's degree from the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture that, uh, uh, that I've never used. Uh, uh, I was uh, stumbling around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had time on my hands and a colleague said, why don't you run this little residential set of services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities? And, and I needed a few bucks. Uh, seemed like kind of an interesting thing to do for a while. And even after I'd done that for a year, I was still looking for planning jobs. I had just finished school, but stumbled into a job helping people with serious mental illness get out of the local state hospital. And I fell in love with the work. And, and uh, a few more graduate degrees later, including my doctorate and my psychology license and an MBA and a bunch of other training, I'm still at it. <laughs> and that that's so typical of other nonprofit leaders that I talk to. You know, when we when we I come from a legal background, when you talk about a lawyer, there's a there's a specific academic program that leads you there. Doctors, there's medical school. Um, I think one of the strengths of our profession is that diversity. Of, of backgrounds and experiences that, that draws us to that nonprofit sector. Would you agree with that? Well, I think that that's true. I think it's true in almost all business now, though. You know, the things that you learn in school are, are all outdated, most of it, by the time you graduate from school. I think it was B.F. Skinner who said that education is what remains after everything I've learned has been forgotten. And, and that's so true in our world that what happens in good academic programs is that you learn how 
to conceptualize programs. You learn how to assess the terrain. You learn how to solve problems and how to think about things in a different way. And you carry that regardless of where you are. When, when I did my, my doctoral work uh, clinically, you know, I learned to think about organizations and individual behavior in a particular way and approach problems that way. When I did my MBA, I learned how to think about organizational problems and situations in a different way. And I, I'm not sure I could tell you very much about the specific content I learned, but I've carried that approach to thinking about the world and approaching situations with me uh, uh, for a long time now. When you first made that move into nonprofit leadership, was there anything that surprised you that, you know, you, you thought, boy, I never, I never realized I was going to have to deal with this as a nonprofit leader? You know, I, I think not, not so much approaching uh, uh, being a nonprofit leader, but as I been working in this field and the terrain has evolved, there are things that continue to surprise me. Uh, uh, you know, probably the biggest change in my world, which is behavioral health, has been the move of behavioral health into the healthcare arena. And, and you know, once upon a time, we had relatively stable, relatively predictable income streams, right? Most of the world was grant and contract funded. You knew what your money was and you delivered the best work that you could within the limits of your budget. Today, in a managed care environment where, where time is money and fee-for-service reigns, uh, uh, you, you don't have as much control or predictability about your top line, and it gets much, much more complicated to manage. I think probably more than anything in behavioral health, that's been the hard adjustment for people, needing to manage not just uh, uh, their their expenses, but also needing to manage in a very different way the revenue budget. And you've been um, you've led a very large nonprofit organization here in Kentucky, Centerstone. Um, is that would would you say that that's been one of the biggest evolutions in the time that you've been at Centerstone? Is that that revenue model? Yeah, I think that's certainly the case. And and the other thing, you know, thinking about Centerstone, which including all the services that, that we manage on subcontract arrangements probably does, I don't know, today, $175 million worth of business, a lot for a market this size. Uh, uh, it, you know, one of the other big evolutions, I, I think, uh, that has occurred around it is the complexity of the work that has to go into doing it, the number of different things you do, and the consolidation of programs. I mean, when I started doing this more than 40 years ago now, uh, uh, there was a program that was going to absorb the little demonstration project I was in. And, and if we had merged with them, it would have made an organization that was approaching a million dollars. And we were all thinking, my God, a million dollars, you know, this is just too big. How can they pay attention to what's really going on? And today, you know, $100 million, $200 million, it's just not as much as it used to be. Have you seen that type of consolidation nationally as well? I know we've certainly seen it here in the Louisville market, but in terms of healthcare um, delivery and, and organizational models, has that consolidation been a national trend as well? 
Yeah, I think absolutely. And and it's not just in, in healthcare and in nonprofits. You know, you, you we've watched what's happened in financial institutions and in banking. You know, you've watched in public accounting, the big eight is now the big four, right? You know, in, in virtually every part of the economy, people recognize that there is value in scale. There's value in scale economies and there's value in managing the market and your position in the market. Healthcare is catching up with that. Behavioral health, the trailing around behind that. All of nonprofit is beginning to think about that. You, you, you know, I'm always interested in the number of people who say, well, you know, I think I'm going to start my own nonprofit, as if there aren't 10 other nonprofits that are already doing that. And why people think that there is value in, in yet another little tiny underfunded, undercapitalized entity out there competing for the same dollars as opposed to consolidating and collaborating and working harder together to leverage more value beyond me. So the as the as a chief executive, how has that shaped um, your job? So as as the industry has consolidated, organizations have become bigger, the budgets have become bigger, has that evolved your role as the chief executive or areas that you tend to spend the most the bulk of your time in? Yeah, it really has. I think there are a couple of different versions of it. Um, one is that or as organizations get bigger and more complex, the role of the chief executive uh, gets in some ways a little more specialized and a little more distant from the day-to-day operation. You know, when, when you're the CEO of a million-dollar organization, you're involved in every bit of everything that's going on. You know, at 100 or $150 million, you've got a really well-developed and robust accounting department that's managing that and a CFO between you and it. You've got somebody who's doing the development for you. You've got somebody who is in charge of operations. You've got a property department, probably. So you're a lot less involved in the day-to-day work, and your role becomes much more, how are you the face of the organization? How are you focused on strategy? What are you doing around marketing? How are you managing the board of directions and external relationships? And it's not that every CEO doesn't worry about it, but your role as the CEO of a large organization becomes much more focused in those areas and less focused on the day-to-day operations. So for a a lot of our listeners who are part of nonprofit organizations, whether as volunteers or board members or or nonprofit executives, we all know how important it is to remain connected to the mission and the heart of the work. As the organization grows and evolves, what are some strategies that you found to remain connected to those that you're serving and the, the, the essential, the people that are benefiting from the services of the organization? You've got to really work at it. I mean, it's really easy to become a distant and uninvolved CEO, and you have to really work at it. I mean, I always think, you know, the guy who ran Costco for years and years uh, used to spend most of his time during the year uh, on a plane going from Costco to Costco and wandering around and talking to people about what's going on. He would visit almost, I mean, probably not today where there are so many, but he used to visit every Costco every year and spend time on the floor. He made it a priority to be there. So I think that that's what CEOs have to do. There are all these other things that pull, you know, lots of them may seem like more fun and more important and all of that, but you've got to make time to do it. So for example, whenever we would have a small celebration in a local program, uh, uh, maybe it's an open house, maybe it's a ribbon cutting because we started a new small program, 
Maybe it's celebrating the retirement of a staff person who's been there for a long time. Take advantage of the opportunities to be there and be present because people are watching you, you know, your presence and your ability to be there and shake hands and smile and talk to people counts. And sometimes in ways that you can't predict, but people remember those kinds of things. So you've got to look for opportunities to be on the ground and be involved and, and jealously take advantage of everyone. And I th- and it feels good for us to, you know, to get out and to, and to reconnect to the mission in that way. And as you said, you know, any, anyone who's been in that leadership role, you know that people are watching not only what you do, but also what you don't do and the choices that you make uh, in that area. Well, I think that's true. But I, th- I, I, I would just, I, I think for maybe you and I, I think it's true that we really look forward to those opportunities. You know, I, I, I worked on the ground for a long time when I started, and, and it's still what I really love to watch and to be part of that. Not everybody does, though. And there are nonprofit CEOs who are really interested in climbing and being um, more in charge and bigger span. And that's where they live and where they want to be. And and it's really easy for those folks to lose touch, I think. I, I know a number of those folks. Right. I think we've all seen those folks. Um, I, I love, you know, Tony, you know, I love working with boards. You know, that's always been my passion is helping nonprofit boards um, transform and helping them effectively govern the organization. As we've seen this consolidation in the nonprofit sector and the nonprofit um, sector continue to evolve, how have you seen the challenges facing board members evolve? And how do, how have you had to address that as a chief executive in recruiting and, and um, engaging new board members? Yeah. I mean, it used to be that boards of directors were sort of uh, rubber stamps for the CEO. Uh, You know, the CEO drove everything and the board kind of followed. And if they were a good board, they raised a little money on the side and, you know, but they were relatively passive. And I think that the role for boards today is really different. The environment is much more competitive and you need all of the edge that you can get to manage and be as efficient and effective as possible. And boards are a tremendous extension for that. I mean, the second thing is that there are all kinds of, at least in my world in healthcare, all kinds of areas related to compliance and contract compliance and managing in accord to the law, which continues to shift. And the board of directors has an even greater fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the organization is really in compliance with the whole regulatory structure, in my case, around health insurance and Medicaid and all of that. So so they've got much deeper responsibility, I think. And then the third thing is, is organizations get to be more complex and more specialized and have deeper bases of expertise. Board members need to be less involved in day-to-day operations and more involved in providing very high-level strategic and operational expertise to help round out the management team, but they don't have to do as much as they used to. You know, when when I was in Chicago, I was looking through the organization's archives that I I worked with there, and, and in the early days of that organization, there was a board committee devoted to the decor of the front lobby. And, and there were people who loved to do decorating, I guess. And, you know, I'm sure the front lobby looked great. 
Today, board members have much more complicated responsibilities around the future of the organization. So I think it calls for a, a higher level of commitment and, and not necessarily every board person, but as a board, a higher level of expertise than it used to. When I work with boards, I think the prerequisite for a good board is that they see they they see themselves as a team. They're bringing complementary skills to the table, all in service of the mission. From a, with with as someone with a psychology background, what would you look for um, in new board members when you were out uh, trying to fill a spot on the board or recruit a new board member? Um, what were some of the qualities or characteristics that were important to you? I think that there are a few things. I mean, you want somebody who's got expertise and a network that's going to bring something new and strengthen the board. So, you know, it's important to have a, 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 a good lawyer or two on the board, for example, because there are bunches of legal questions that, that have to have to get addressed and having their advice is helpful. But you have to understand not every lawyer is the same as every other lawyer. You know, our lawyers are more transactional. They're criminal lawyers that are appellate lawyers and all of that. So you may need a range of, of legal expertise. Same thing for accounting, you know. So I look for people who bring bases of expertise and bases of community connection that will be useful to the organization. I want them to be able to add something to my ability to lead and make the organization flourish. The second thing is you've got to have somebody who's willing to book the time to do it. And, and, and that means a commitment of something more than an hour every month or two or three for a board meeting. You want somebody who's going to be willing to dig in and commit to spending some time to make the organization a success. And it doesn't have to be the same thing for every person. You know, maybe they want to do fund development. Maybe they want to help with audit and finance committee. But somebody who's got something that they want to contribute. And then the third thing is uh, you want somebody who's going to be able to play nice, as you're saying, with the rest of the team, because it really has to be a team. It doesn't take in a board of 12 or 15 people, very many board members, to really undermine and hijack the effectiveness of that board. You know, if you have a little cabal of three board members that go rogue, they can just blow the whole thing up in fairly short order. So you want somebody who's going to be willing to play nice. And, and maybe add one more thing. I think that it's important for people to have a strong commitment to the welfare and the success of the organization. Now, sometimes that means they've got very direct connection to the mission of the organization. In places I've worked, I often have people who say, I'm here because I have a loved one with a serious mental illness and I want to give back. But they don't have to have that. One of my favorite board members in another city uh, had none of those kinds of connections, but he thought that this was an important thing for the welfare of the community and from a public policy point of view. And so he was committed to investing in it. But people have to have some reason that they come to the table and that they want to be there. They're going to do their best. So now I want to transition um, a little bit into um, what we talked about at the beginning, which is positive psychology. So for someone like me who does not have a does not have a background in this. Can you give us the high-level overview of what do we mean by positive psychology? Yeah, positive psychology. Think of positive psychology as the research base and the base of interventions that are designed to improve your subjective level of well-being, to make you happy, 
right? Sort of the science of happiness is, is how it's been described. And it's important because historically, psychology has tended to focus on pathology and dysfunction, you, you know? Uh, there was a study that was done uh, uh, several years ago where they looked at a base of psychology journals, and by a margin of about 20 to 1, Articles in those journals were faced. Uh, articles in those journals were based on things about pathology and people doing badly, and how do you eliminate symptoms and get people back to baseline. Very little of it was devoted to what do we know and what can we do to help people have better psychological health, better quality of life, higher levels of well-being and happiness. And positive psychology is the applied study of the things that increase your ability to be happy. I guess I'm familiar with um, positive psychology uh, primarily from a sports standpoint. I know there are many athletes that have worked with sports psychologists to enhance their performance and to help with visualization. Um, what are some of the other areas uh, that positive psychology has impacted? Sure. You know, it, it, it's. I'll give you some examples of interventions that may be used as a way of doing that. So one of the things that we know is that, that if you develop the ability to observe and appreciate what's going on around you, you tend to feel better, right? That's a lot of what goes on in mindfulness. Uh, 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 if you can stay focused on and pay attention to the better parts of your life and ruminate less about the things that don't go so well, you tend to be happier. The, the cliche that gets used sometimes is when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. And, and so there are a lot of interventions in positive psychology focused on helping you to do that. So a really simple example of it would be keeping a gratitude journal. If once a day, beginning of the day, you sit down and you write for three or four minutes just about the things you're grateful for right now, small things, big things can be as simple as, you know, I'm really glad that I, I have a good cup of coffee every morning, you know, or it could be really big. I'm really glad that my uh, daughter just got a great job and is doing well. But if we take time to observe what's going right, to appreciate it, and to be grateful for those things, it has all kinds of carryover in our lives. It sends out ripples and it improves our level of subjective well-being. There's a lot of research around that. And it would seem to me that this would be particularly powerful in the nonprofit community. I mean, many of our nonprofit leaders are obviously addressing very challenging issues day after day. Um, this positivity, how, how do you see it impacting nonprofit leaders? Well, I, I want to separate. It's not really about positivity, right? Okay. Because like, you know, stuff happens in your life, right? right. Not all good. Right. So it's not about, about positivity as much as it is uh, 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 appreciating and being observant about things. You can have bad things that go on in your life and your baseline can still be really pretty good, okay. you know? Uh, uh, and, and I think for nonprofit leaders, you know, leaders generally in all organizations, certainly in all parts of the economy, there are levels of stress and ups and downs and difficulties with it. And we need to take good care of ourselves if we're going to be there to dig in and do the work and we then be at our best. And positive psychology brings a whole dimension to that that helps to round out our ability to do that. And I think everybody's probably heard the advice about, you, you know, uh, you want to take better care of yourself. Exercise is a good thing and nutrition and so on. And that's absolutely true. No, I've been hearing that for years. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all the stuff that our parents told us, <laughs> That's right. right. But Green beans too, right? It can't hurt, right? <laughs> 
but there are other things to it too. You know, in broad terms, if 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 we're we're doing a lot of attention to uh, 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 mind body kinds of things, you know, exercise, sleep, nutrition, if we're paying attention to relationships and appreciating and staying connected to the people in our lives that are important to us, if we're working on appreciation and gratitude and observation of what's happening and mindfulness, uh, uh, touch is really important, you, you, you know, I mean, yeah, hugs are really a good thing, you know, and it doesn't have to be with strangers on the street, but finding a place for physical touch makes a difference too. If we do these kinds of things, we feel better. We feel more relaxed. We feel more centered and all kinds of things happen coming out of that. It improves our performance. It, one of the best studies I ever saw was when people are happier, they're luckier, <laughs> Right. But but in all kinds of dimensions, it improves our lives, including improving our ability to be great leaders and to be great CEOs. So I can see definitely how this would be a powerful um, how this would be powerful for an individual leader. What would you say to someone who wanted to bring this to their team? How would they go about doing that? So if I was the leader of an organization and I said, I, I see the benefit of this. How do I share this with my staff, with my team, with my board? Um, what advice would you give that person? Well, I think that that's a really great question. And it's like almost everything else you want to do for your team or for your organization. It takes more than just like doing a training and expecting that it's going to happen. You've got to intentionally build opportunities for this. So uh, 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 one of the things that we know in positive psychology is that a sense of playfulness helps to enhance connections between people. It helps to build deeper relationships. Those deeper and better relationships have all kinds of positive outcomes. How do you introduce elements of play into your team? You know, how, how, how do you keep uh, uh, your, your, your team and all the stressful, difficult things that they have to do from devolving into some kind of a death march that feels like a trudge from day to day? How do you introduce fun into that? So they can be really simple things, you know, they can be as as simple as little games that you play at the beginning of meetings, you know, they can be as simple as 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 encouraging people to have little baskets of toys on their desks, something I'm I'm really fond of. Uh, it, it can be staff time together and retreats that aren't focused on deep learning, but are things like um, you know, my team went away uh, a couple of weeks ago to celebrate something at the end of the day, uh, just two hours. We cut out of work an hour early and we stuck around an hour later than people might normally. And we went to a local place and threw axes. <laughs> right. And, 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 and it was great fun. You know, it was like not a big deal. Wasn't cost a lot of money. Everyone survived. No one threw axes at each other. Ten fingers and toes left for all of us, right? Uh, uh, but we had fun together. And so that kind of sense of play is something that makes a difference. But you've got to introduce it intentionally. And you've got to work it. And you've got to get over the hump because pump people are going to say, oh, this is kind of silly. Do we have to do that again? Blah, blah, blah. Got to stay upbeat and move it along. So you can begin to build these sorts of things in as specific structures in, in the organization that help to carry the staff in more positive ways. And I imagine it's like most other things. When we talk about building the culture of an organization, it's something that you have to do over and over again. It can't just be a one-time meeting or a one-time um, event as part of a staff meeting. 
Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, the, the funny thing about it is it's a real balance because on one hand, you've got to really work at doing it over and over again and institutionalizing it. And at the same time, you don't want it to become stale, right. And become just sort of a pro forma thing we do because it loses its value. So how do you keep it alive and thriving and evolving? It means you've got to work at it every day, but not necessarily doing exactly the same thing every day. It's the principle of it. It's appreciating how important it is to be a part of this team. It's appreciating how much I value the relationship I have with you. It's appreciating what we do together and how important that is and how lucky we are to be here with the opportunity to do this stuff and observing and spending time with it. And and how are we going to do that today? And it may not be the same as the way we did it yesterday. And it seems like there might be some value or benefit to it being unpredictable or people not necessarily knowing what to expect or what the game is going to be or what the uh, um, kind of what, what's the value of that um, surprise element. Well, you want to look for opportunities. And, and you know, it's like I said earlier, when, 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 when we were in third grade, hardly any of us thought this is what we were going to do when we grew up. Stuff happens. Accidents occur. Things that you don't expect. And, and so you've got to be able to keep not just laser narrow focus, but you've got to keep your, your, your lateral vision really wide as well. And things pop up and there are great opportunities to do things and you want to be observant and, and ready to grab those as well. So I think there is that element of surprise and novelty that makes a difference, but keeping it organic, the awareness of opportunity and willingness to grab those things is what does it. I can see the benefit of, of this approach on an everyday basis as part of the culture of the organization. How does this, um, how does this benefit an organization perhaps in times of crisis or when something comes up that is um, more difficult for the organization to deal with? What, what's, the, what's the benefit during those times? Well, the better your team is and, and the higher the level of baseline subjective well-being that your team has, the more resilient it's going to be and the better able it's going to be to absorb those bumps along the way. I mean, when, when, when I was in Boston, I was working for an organization where, where uh, the, the state decided to rebid uh, uh, most of, of our business all at the same time. Everything in our business was competitively procured, and the state put a whole bunch of stuff out for bid. Not just our business, but everybody's business. So, you know, we could either lose a lot or we could gain a lot or at least stay even. It meant that we had to produce that were all due on the same day we ended up doing 20 or 25 contract proposals. Each one, including all of the copies, took up about a file box of paper, right? You know, and, and we had 60 days to produce that. You know, that was the timeline for it. Uh, uh, that doesn't happen without a team that is functioning at maximal effectiveness. And so we found ways to take the joy and the fun that we had being together and working together and doing exciting things and converted into focusing on this project. And people work basically seven days a week for 60 days, but we had a lot of fun in, in a weird way doing it, you know, bringing in pizza in the middle of the night. I've still got photos someplace. So <laughs> some of my staff climbing in over what amounted to a giant glacier in front of the building so that we could do some work on a Sunday. Uh, uh, and, and, and to this day, 
the team still gets together once in a while and talks about that experience and how much fun it was and what we learned. But it was because we loved each other and we had fun together before that. We could carry that over into those difficult projects. Um, you've done all of this as a, as a nonprofit executive, nonprofit CEO. Now you're working with organizations in a different capacity as a coach, as a consultant. How, um, how do you uh, implement some of this into your new consulting and coaching practice? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I, I spend time talking with people about the importance of, of this and the importance of team and taking care of each other and building focus and momentum. Uh, not always easy for, for groups to do, but it becomes a, a key part of, of what I do. The other part of it is that, that, that I found that, that often the success of teams uh, hinges on the effectiveness of a few key individuals in the team. And I think that's where executive coaching plays an important role. Uh, uh, you know, there are often two or three key people in the organization that have to be working at a higher level whose personal stuff is getting in the way. Uh, and that if you can coach them into a higher level of effectiveness, the whole team does better. So, you know, I'll, I'll bring a combination of content expertise about behavioral health, organizational behavior kind of expertise that we'll bring to the table. A lot of it's centered around positive psychology. And my executive coaching is very positive psychology focused. It's very focused on how are we going to do things that are going to improve your subjective level of well-being and make you more effective. Wonderful. Tony, um, I appreciate your time today. If folks want to learn more about your approach, about um, the, some of the topics that we've talked about today, how might they um, get in touch with you or reach out to you? Well, you know, I'm just getting this set up. So my, my website and, and domain-specific email isn't there, but they can find me at azipple, A-Z-I-P-P-L-E, at gmail.com. And I'm easy to find on LinkedIn as well. Wonderful. Tony, thank you for your time today. Um, I know I have learned a lot. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to chat with me and share your wisdom, your experience um, with our listeners. Again, my name is Gregory Nielsen, President and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting. Uh, my website is www.nielsenconsults.com. Tony, thank you for your time today and have a wonderful afternoon. Great to be here.